God speaks to us in his word. This is Job 28, 12 through 28. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where, then, does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. This is the word of the Lord. Hey guys, good morning. How you doing? Good. Uh, it's really fun to be here. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors in our church. And uh, my wife and I were called by the Lord to plant Frontline Church in downtown OKC in 2005. And I've missed you guys. I haven't been here in quite a while, not since the first of the year. Um, the elders asked me to step back in as the lead pastor of our downtown congregation. And that's been going great, but it's been a ton of work and a lot of transition. And I've missed you guys. So it makes my heart really glad to see you. Um, even if I get the week where I'm here on spring forward, which is the darkest day of the year. Um, it, it's an appropriate day to be preaching through the book of Job. It's a sad day, but thank you for being here and thanks for welcoming me. Uh, a couple of our pastors are out of town. Ben Hill, our lead pastor, is on vacation, so pray for him that he gets some rest. He'll be back next week. And uh, Matthew Emerson is out of town on vacation. So let me say a couple of things, and then we're gonna dive into Job chapter 28. If you've got a Bible, you can start finding that. I think if you don't have scripture with you, we'll have it up on the screen. And uh, let me just start off by saying, there's a lot of us that are a part of this church that haven't figured out what we believe yet. And there's a lot of us that are coming back to the church after having been away for a really long time. And we're blessed to have a lot of non-Christians that are attending our church. And I just wanna say up front that if you're in one of those categories or in a category that I don't have language to describe, trying to figure out who you are and what you believe and if there's relevance to the gospel story to your life, let me just tell you that you're in safe company. And I really mean that. Like, we're not gonna try to sell you a timeshare. We're not gonna try to quickly talk you into anything. In fact, one of the greatest delights of our church is to be the kind of community where you can not pretend and you can have space to belong in this community as we talk about the claims of Jesus and what he's doing in our lives and our imperfections and failings as we try to follow him in ways that are often really fumbling. So if that's you, thanks for being here. And I just want to welcome you. And I want you to know that we've been praying for you. And to whatever degree you want to have conversations about Jesus and his word, we would be in for that. And that would be a joy to us. Amen. All right. Uh, let me pray for you. And you guys pray for me. And we'll dive into Job chapter 28. Um, Father, thank you so much for the men and women in this room, and thank you that though I don't have the capacity to know what everybody brought into this space today, you do. 
I don't know where there's gladness in the hearts of my brothers and sisters, but you do. I don't know where all the sadness is or the anxiety. I don't know what's pressing on them, but you do. And thank you that what you've revealed to us in your son is that you're not stingy and you're not begrudging and you're not holding yourself apart from us, asking us to figure it all out or get our lives together, but you come towards us in Jesus. So I pray today that wherever my friends are, that this would be a moment where we could breathe in your presence and we could breathe out gratitude and thank you that our stories aren't finished yet. I need to remind myself of that today as a parent and as a man that like, you're not done yet. We're, we're in progress and we're in process and you're faithful to finish what you started. So would you encourage us today? Would you grant us faith today? And Holy Spirit, we just want to acknowledge that what makes this church special is not our programming or our building or our team, but it's the presence of the living God. So we pray that your presence would do what only it can do. Help us today as we open up Job. Lord, this book is, uh, it's baffling, it's confusing, it's overwhelming, it's deep, and yet it's really beautiful and it's really helpful. So would you give us wisdom to grasp it today? Pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Hey, let me just say a couple of things about the book of Job. Um, I know a lot of you guys have been here for the last few weeks as we've walked through the first 27 chapters. Some of you are brand new today. We've got people that are back for the first time today. And let me just name up front, the book of Job is a bit terrifying. It freaks me out. In fact, I've had this really weird relationship in preaching through the book of Job where I kind of lobbied our pastors to preach through this book. And I actually convinced him it was a good idea. And then I had the first week of trying to prepare for sermon number one. And I was like, I instantly regret the decision to do this. This book is confusing and it's deep and it's baffling and it's beautiful. And there's parts of it that are really ugly. And yet here's the thing I found every single week, though I have a moment of sheer raw panic in looking at the text and wrestling with what it means, every week God has met me and he's been meeting our church in really profound ways. The book of Job is wild. In the book of Job, we have the problem of evil and suffering. We have the tension between God's sovereignty and God's mercy. We have the brokenness of the world that's put on display in front of us. And what we found in the first week and what we're gonna find as we begin to wrap this book up is that the story of Job is not as much the story of God answering all of our objections and problems as it relates to evil and suffering, although there's some of that. The book of Job is less about God answering all of our questions, plural, and it's more about God inviting us in the midst of our loss, pain, suffering, and the brokenness of this world to encounter him. And when we get to the very end of the book, what's so beautiful about this story is that through the poetry of Job, what Job gets at the end of the book is not a list of answers external to God that resolve the tension or make him intellectually satisfied with why his life has fallen apart. But what we find at the end of this book is that Job encounters the living God and encountering the living God, he doesn't get all the answers plural, but he finds the capital A answer. And in finding God and meeting God in that way, he moves from a way of relating to God religiously and what I mean by that is man-centered religion in which we build systems external to God. And what happens is some of Job's religion melts away in the presence of God and he gets a fuller experience of God, which includes heads and hearts, doctrines, and also our soul. 
And so today is really powerful and today is really helpful if you're new to this book because chapter 28 is really unique. Um, People debate about chapter 28 when they study the book of Job. We don't really know who's talking. And what happens in chapter 28 is this book kind of changes gears. It moves out of the narrative and it moves out of the poetic dialogue that Job's been having with his buddies, which kind of ends up being like a early 90s rap battle where they're trying to outdo each other and it gets more and more heated. And what happens in chapter 28 is this really profound transition where the narrator, who is an ancient sage, pulls back from Job's internal turmoil and external circumstances, and he writes a song. He writes a song in the midst of all of Job's suffering, and this song is a hymn to the beauty of wisdom. And I think that's really powerful and it's really helpful for us because it reminds us that the book of Job is ancient wisdom poetry. And ancient wisdom poetry in the biblical tradition is all about us having our lives confronted with ultimate reality. Ultimate reality. And not only knowing ultimate reality, but ancient wisdom in the biblical tradition is an invitation to have our lives wrapped around ultimate reality. It's not enough to know reality if we don't live in congruence with reality, if our lives are incongruent with what's ultimate and what's true, things aren't gonna go well for us. So as Job gets pressed in his suffering and pain, there's an invitation from God to the kind of wisdom that actually roots him and grounds him in the midst of all of his loss and all the tragedy, the frailties of his body and the failings of his relationships in what is ultimately true and powerful. And I just want to pause for a second and name, we need that. Like ancient biblical wisdom is not something that's dusty and tired that we need to update or reject or tweak for our modern sensibilities. Ancient biblical wisdom is an invitation to not be like Job's friends who were traditionalists. And what I mean by that is Job's friends are regurgitating to Job all the things they've learned in their tradition about God, but they fall short of knowing God. Like they miss God in this book. They say things that are biblical and true, but God rebukes them at the end of the story for not speaking rightly about him because they had a lot of tradition, but what they were missing in their tradition was the kind of encounter with God that leads to worship, that leads to compassion, that leads to a heart change. And Job's really interesting because he kind of flirts in this story with a different approach to ultimate reality, which is more of a modern approach. We see Job kind of throwing off the tradition he had received, and he's questioning some things about God that he had been taught, namely God's justice. So in the midst of Job's personal experience, Job has this temptation that we have today as moderns to remake God in his own image so that he can explain what he's experiencing. Job never questions that God's sovereign, but he does begin to question if God's just, if he's good, if he's trustworthy. In fact, Job wants to litigate against God. And what's fascinating in our cultural moment is that both of those approaches are still alive and well. Like some of us in the room have the pull towards being traditionalist as we try to answer the question, how do I live in light of reality? We can regurgitate and we can rehearse things that we've learned, but not necessarily have the truth of who God is integrated into our daily experience. And a lot of us in the room, we won't take a poll, but a lot of us feel the pull of the modern approach to wisdom. Find your own truth. 
Make your own reality. Let it be on your terms. You've experienced things that have hurt you, so perhaps everything's up for grabs and you can navigate the world as an individual solely grappling with what's true. Or maybe like, Neither of those is the temptation that you have in the room. Maybe your temptation is like uh, Cypher in the movie The Matrix from 1999. Uh, I'm probably like one of the few nerdy 90s sci-fi movie guys in the room, and I'm okay with that. Um, It's this fascinating movie, right, where human beings are enslaved by artificial intelligence, and they're plugged into this computer program, and the machines are feeding on them, and there's this moment of liberation where people are awakened to what's true and real, but it's a struggle. It's a fight. It's not a pretty reality. And in the midst of that, there's this one guy named Cypher that decides he wants to get plugged back into the matrix to be comfortable to get out of the struggle. And he has this crazy line where he says, you know, I know the stake doesn't exist, I know that when I put it in my mouth, the matrix is telling my brain that it's juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? He takes a bite of steak. Ignorance is bliss. Maybe the pull of your life is not to be a traditionalist that just regurgitates ultimate reality in the way you've learned it, or a modern who sort of creates reality on your own terms. Maybe you're just tempted like I'm tempted to just go on cruise control and be a consumer and try to live your life in a way where you don't have to suffer or hurt or look at reality, where we can just get to the next vacation or get to retirement or get to whatever it is that you're living for. And so chapter 28 is really powerful. It's really helpful because it's building the bridge to Job encountering God. And the way that the author builds the bridge for Job's encounter with God is by telling us that we really need wisdom. He's going to remind us of three things that I want to show you today in the text. Um, The first thing he's going to point out is mankind's amazing capacity to explore. He's going to sound a bit like a traditional humanist at the beginning of this song he's going to sing. Look at verse 1 of chapter 28. Surely there's a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out the farthest limit, the ore, in deep gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They're forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it, it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires. It has the the dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns the mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rock, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the stream so they do not trickle. And the thing that is hidden, he brings to the light. Listen, this ancient teacher of wisdom is saying, human beings are really good at finding precious things in dark places. They're really good at exploring the universe that we live in. Human beings have an amazing capacity through science, through education, through philosophy, and even through technology of exploring the world in which we live, trying to make life a little bit easier, and answering how questions. We're good at that. This is pretty cool because it's a reminder that the Bible's not anti-science, it's not anti-technology. Like these are all poetic metaphors for what human beings can do and what we're really good at doing. 
There are dark places with precious secrets hidden, and human beings, since the beginning of time, have been exploring those dark places and finding valuable, beautiful things in them. But listen, here's where the warning is going to come in as he transitions. If you start to believe your own press clippings as a human being, if you start to think that that's sufficient, if the how questions of science and technology and philosophy and education are where you stop in your human journey, what you're going to have is a treadmill that doesn't lead to the deeper things. There's a limitation in this poetry. There's a limitation in our humanity. And the limitation is, though human beings are great at answering how questions, and though it's good to flex your intellectual muscle and reason's not bad and science is not bad, those are good things, those are important things, the poet is going to turn and he's going to say, we're profoundly limited though in finding ultimate wisdom, which is hidden in a way darker place than any jewel or any ore in the earth. We're limited. Look what he says in verse 12 as he transitions. But where shall wisdom be found? That's ultimate meaning, ultimate reality that shapes identity, that shapes purpose. And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth. It's not found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. It can't be bought for gold. Silver can't be weighed as its price. It can't be valued in the gold of Ophir. The precious onyx or sapphire gold and glass cannot equal it. Nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or crystal, no price of wisdom. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from the birds of the air. This is really powerful. He's contrasting precious things in dark places that we can find and the most precious thing that we long for, which is ultimate wisdom. What's the purpose of life? What's my meaning? Who am I? Why am I here? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has this really cool metaphor that he uses. He's talking about humanity. And the metaphor that he uses is we're like a fleet of ships sailing together. And he says there's three questions that we have to answer if we're going to live a deep life. The first question is, how do we keep from crashing into each other? That's the question of relationship, of ethics. How do you not run your vessel into another person's life and sink both of you? The second question is the question of morality. That's uh, how do we keep the vessel from taking on water? Like, how do you keep the boat that you are from rotting and sinking in the open sea? That's the question of values. Now, our particular cultural moment is not really good at answering either of those. Like, morality's kind of up to us, and ethics, how we treat each other, is just limited to don't do any harm. But there's a third question that we don't even have a grid for answering, that there's no compelling answers for. It's the question of wisdom. And that question is, where are the boat's supposed to be going? Because like you can not take on water and you can not crash into anybody, but if you're meant to arrive, according to Lewis, in New York City and you end up in harbor in Calcutta, that's a problem, right? And it's that question that leads us to the place of why. That's the Bible's answer for wisdom is it's not enough to just answer the how questions of life. We need the why question answered. 
Who am I and why am I here and where am I going and what's the purpose of my life? And listen, chapter 28 is in the context of Job's suffering because when everything's going great, we rarely ask the why question. (laughs) When you're wealthy and you're healthy and your marriage is going great and your kids are obedient or your singleness feels like freedom and your job is on an upward trend, it's everything moving up and to the right, like we can just sort of live there. But when the diagnosis comes that you don't want to hear, when your marriage is terrible, when singleness starts to feel like a curse, when your kids are not doing well, like when your job is not going okay, when you don't know how you're going to make ends meet, what starts to happen is these deeper questions have a way of popping up and haunting us in the wee hours of the morning. And the author of Job is saying that's actually a good thing because we need the why questions answered. Um, Nietzsche was a philosopher that's kind of famous for writing God is dead. And I'm not a Nietzsche fan. Nietzsche hated Jesus, hated the church, was an ardent atheist. But I kind of am a Nietzsche fan, and here's why. Right? I, I don't believe what Nietzsche believed, but Nietzsche's one of the few philosophers that's ever lived that threw the penalty flag on doing away with God and doing away with all the teachings of Christianity and pretending like we could carry on with business as usual. Nietzsche talks about what we've done in the death of God is we've unchained the sun from the earth. Meaning there's nothing to rotate around. There's no way to navigate life. Like we don't know what's up. We don't know what's down. And therefore, according to Nietzsche, it's all up for us. And we have to overcome morality and craft meaning on our own terms. And what the author of this book is saying is, listen, like, You need the why question of your life answered. You need to know who you are and what you're for. You need to know what people are for. And the way that you get that question answered is not through technology or science. It's not through searching out the dark places of the earth. It's through an encounter with God that Job's about to have. And that leads us to the third thing. Ultimate wisdom is in our creator and redeemer. Look at verse 23. God understands the way to it. So the deep doesn't know and death and Abaddon don't know, but God knows the way to this wisdom. He knows its place for he looks to the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure. When he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Let me try to help unpack this because chapter 28 is the bridge of the book of Job. Job's gonna move from being the questioner to the questioned. And instead of litigating against God, instead of desiring to call God into his court of law so that he could accuse God, Things are going to shift and God's going to show up not to shame Job or to belittle Job or to mock Job's questions, but God's going to question Job. And in Job's encounter with God, as God questions Job, as we're going to see in a couple weeks, what happens is Job starts to arrive at true wisdom according to scripture and ancient wisdom teaching, which is the fear of God. Now, what does that mean? Um, like a lot of us in the room, you might have been exposed to fundy churches that were sort of fire and brimstone where there was a lot of 
talk about hell, talk about judgment, not a lot of talk about God's mercy and grace. And you can hear fear of God and you can associate the fear of God with that kind of teaching and that kind of church that it's sort of a, it's sort of a God who's like a grumpy dad that you have to tiptoe around. Or if your upbringing was really dark, if you had an alcoholic father, the fear of God can bring to mind images of you having to walk on eggshells and not draw dad's gaze because if dad pays attention to you, things are gonna go really poorly. Listen, let me be as clear as I can. The fear of God is neither of those things. The fear of God that the Bible describes as the beginning of wisdom is not being scared of God. It's the experience Job has at the end of this book where he beholds God rightly and in beholding God rightly, worship, awe, majesty grabs Job's soul and the fear of God then leads to, listen, an inner quiet, a stillness where Job at the end of this book can finally quit talking and even though his circumstances aren't better, he can breathe, he can trust, he can wait on God and believe that God's will is trustworthy and good and that God's for him and not against him. And that still leaves us in a really hard predicament because Job's encounter with God was exceptional and weird, amen? Like God's gonna show up in a whirlwind and he's gonna question Job. It's this visceral, sensory experience. Like, that only happens, to my knowledge, to like three other people in the entire Old Testament. Moses has an encounter with God like that. Elijah has an encounter with God like that. But that's not every Tuesday for people. <laughs> like, what Job experiences is this manifest presence of God that's so overwhelming and so powerful. Well, of course it leads to awe and wonder and fear and silence. And that leads us back to the beginning. Like, how do we then arrive at wisdom? If the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, if encountering God in his fullness and seeing him as ultimate reality, having your purpose answered by his presence and your identity answered by his presence, how do you get there? And the answer of scripture and Job's place in canon is all about leading us to a fuller experience than Job had, to a greater wisdom than the author of Job gets at, to ultimate wisdom and ultimate truth found in the personal work of Jesus Christ. Let, let me end today by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, a few verses to you. Paul writes, where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the, fully, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Listen, there's an experience of God's wisdom, his fullness that's available to you and me that's far more powerful than the whirlwind that Job experienced in God's presence. It's far more full. It's far more fleshed out. The way that Job experienced God was beautiful and it was powerful, but ultimately it points beyond itself to the wisdom of God taking on flesh and to the encounter of God's wisdom we get to have in Jesus, which Paul describes as foolishness to the world. In that act of redemption, as God the Son 
takes on flesh, humbles himself, lives in all the human limitations that you and I have lived in, perfectly obeys the Father, goes to the cross, is crushed in our place for our sins, bears our sin, bears our shame. What's being manifested is the wisdom of God, the splendor of God, the majesty of God. In the resurrection of Jesus, you're seeing God's final and ultimate answer to the problem of sin and evil and suffering and death itself. And in that revelation, here's what happens. To see Jesus rightly is to arrive at the fear of God. It's to get to a place where you see God as beautiful and believable. And like Job, you can quit questioning and you put your hand over your mouth and you can rest in God. It doesn't mean that you check your intellect at the door, but it does mean that even when you don't understand why things are happening to you or why things are happening in the world, even when the chaos of this world seems to be the loudest, to know the wisdom of God in Jesus means that God's already given you his yes. And even when you don't understand, you can have a quietness of soul. You can breathe, you can trust. And navigating the world through the wisdom of God in Jesus, navigating our identity, navigating our relationships, navigating our suffering, navigating our ultimate death and the death of our loved ones in the light of Jesus is ultimate wisdom. So Father, I, I just thank you for my friends and I pray, um, I pray that you would help us to take some inventory of our lives today. Help us to take inventory of versions of wisdom that we believe in that may not be wise. And I pray that today, as we look at the cross and resurrection of your son, I pray that you would bring us to the fear of God. Not being scared of you, but in reverence and awe, loving and worshiping you. Trusting you with our days, trusting you with our stories, trusting you with our sin trusting you with our frailty, trusting you with even the places that are dark around us. I pray as we come to the Lord's Supper that you would feed our souls, that you would nourish us, that you would strengthen us in grace.